The last time that we were together, we considered the creation of woman. And we considered the creation of woman with three main points. We first considered the humanity of woman. Woman, women, woman is and women are created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God is what gives humanity our dignity. Our dignity comes from being created in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, our dignity is not from our social status. Our dignity is not from our financial status. Our dignity is not from our political status. Being created in the image of God is what gives to us dignity. Being created in the image of God is what causes you and I to honor one another in spite of our vast differences. You and I are created in the image of God. Men and women created in the image of God. Man does not bear the image of God more than women. And therefore, women do not bear the image of God any less than a man. The difference between man and woman is not our humanity but rather our calling and our function. Man is called, created to lead. The woman is called, created to help. In these callings, there is no loss of dignity and there is no loss or decrease of humanity. There is only fulfillment when we obey these God-given roles that God has given to us and functions. Greatness is not seen in status. Greatness is seen in service. What did the Lord Jesus Christ say in relation to who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The greatest among you will be your servant, the one who serves. We then considered the order of creation. Man was created first. Man was given the command and commission from God to work and keep the garden. He was commissioned to expand the glory of the Garden of Eden. He was given commands concerning the sacramental trees of Eden. And then woman was created. God gives all of these commands to Adam and then woman is created. And she was created to help Adam accomplish what God had commanded him to do. Adam could not accomplish his calling on his own. He needed the woman to help him to be fruitful and multiply. It was a a two-person job. This could not be done alone. He needed the woman to help him expand the garden. This was a two-person job. He needed the woman to help him keep watch over the garden. Brothers and sisters, God did not create man to do this alone. Man was placed in an, an authoritative role via the creative order. Man was created first. And this... This is our foundation for male headship in the home and in the church of God. This is our foundation for male headship. And finally, we consider the identity and innocence of the woman. She is created. She is from the man and she is with the man. She is called to assist. She is called to help. She is called to make the life of the man easier and better. They were sinless. They were naked. There was no need to cover them because they were morally 
upright, created perfect. And now this morning, we come to the very end of the second chapter of the book of Genesis as we consider marriage between man and woman. And as we consider marriage between man and woman, we will observe how God himself has instituted marriage. Let me say, brothers and sisters, marriage is not a human construct. Marriage is the pattern of God for mankind. Marriage between one man, marriage between one woman, is not something that humans have invented. Marriage has been created and instituted by God. Therefore, marriage between one man and one woman cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It is law instituted by God, not by man. Therefore, we have no right to change it. God alone has instituted this. God alone has created this. And God alone has patterned this for men to follow. It is God's creation. It is God's order. With that said, let us stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept. Took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said. This at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is God's word. Please be seated. The Lord God created man. When God created man, God placed the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. To have dominion over all of the earth as earth's king, prophet, and priest. And the Lord God brought every animal before Adam to name the animals. Have you read that before and thought, that must have been a long process? Naming all of the animals. But have you thought why God has brought had brought all of the animals before Adam to name them? Think about that for a moment. Why would God bring all of the animals before Adam to name them? Well, to give them names, of course. Is that it? To show that he has dominion over all the animals, of course. And, And you would be correct in saying all of these things, but... What happened before the animals were named? Do you notice something there in Scripture when you read prior to the animals being named? Is there something that took place? There is. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now think about this. Out of all of the things the Lord God created. 
there were only two things that God had deemed as not being good. It would, first of all, be deadly and not good if man ate from the tree that God had forbidden him to eat from. That's number one. The second thing that is not good in all of the things that God had deemed as being not only good but very good was it was not good for man to be alone. The Lord God makes this statement about the condition of man. It is not good for man to be alone. Man is good. Man was created morally upright, sinless, perfect. But, brothers and sisters, it is and was not good for man to be alone. Animals are then brought before Adam. Adam names each of them. And as each animal is brought before Adam, and as he names each of them, he notices something. What does he notice? That there is no suitable counterpart for him. But for Adam, there was not a suitable helper. There was not for Adam a suitable companion. And this was not good. Now, some had said last week, and you may be even saying now, but I thought that singleness was a good thing. I thought that being single was a great thing even. It is. It is a gift from God. What is the gift, though? It's a gift of time. It's a gift of availability. That you may devote more of your time, what? Not to just being single. Not to just saying, I'm alone. I have no one. What's that song that Carlton Banks sang when he was in the back house with Will? You're from my era, if you know this, lonely. I'm so lonely, right? I have nobody. Remember that song? Now, if you're from that era, you know who really sang it, and we won't go there. Loneliness is not a gift because you're lonely, though. Singleness is a gift because you are now then able to use your singleness to devote it to God. To devote it to the ministry of the gospel. But you were not created to be alone. Do you understand that? You were created for, for companionship. You are wired for companionship. God has made you this way. So then when God brings before Adam all of the animals to be named, it is not just Adam's display of lordship over all the earth. God is showing Adam that no animal could give to him what his heart longed for. No animal is suitable for him. No animal is fit for him. The Lord God was showing Adam that dogs are not your best friend. Only God can provide what man's heart longs for. The Lord God knew all along, even before the animals were made, even before Eve was created, that Adam needed a helper, that Adam would have a counterpart. But Adam needed to see this. Adam needed to see that nothing apart from God's provision would suffice, that nothing apart from God's provision would fulfill him. And this is cheaply seen. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, we vainly seek fulfillment in vice after vice, pursuit after pursuit. And yet, it is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It is in Him alone that we will find true completeness. It is in Him alone that we will find true companionship. You were created for this. It is not good for man to be alone. And as we considered marriage, as we consider marriage this morning... 
we will do so with three main principles. But before we do that, because I will not make a case for it this morning, let me say to you that the Bible teaches marriage is to be permanent. Marriage is to be heterosexual and marriage is to be monogamous. This is what God's word teaches. Marriage is to be permanent, heterosexual and monogamous. Now then. Going on to the three points this morning, or our three principles. Number one, concerning marriage, there is the marriage principle of leaving. Number one, the marriage principle of leaving. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Brothers and sisters, When a man joins a woman in marriage, there is a fundamental and basic leaving of the original home and family relationship. But what does this mean to leave? Let me first tell you what what it does not mean. Leaving does not mean that your relationships with your parents are erased. Amen. When you are married and leave. It does not mean that you cease to be the child of your parents and that they are no longer in your lives. Leaving does not mean that you utterly forsake your original family. We are obligated to uphold the moral law of honoring our fathers and our mothers. Scripture commands and obligates that we who have left the home should honor our fathers and mothers by caring for them, by being involved in their lives. In Mark 7, 9-13, the Lord Jesus rebuked the Jews who, instead of helping their parents, were willing to pledge all their goods to the temple by oath instead of helping their parents who were in need. The Lord Jesus said, you should be caring for your parents who are in need. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, The Apostle Paul makes it clear that we should be concerned with the well-being of our household, but not just our household, but also the households of our relatives and family. And if we do not do so, then Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we are worse than an unbeliever. That if we do not provide for and take care of our families, then we are infidels. When we are married... It does not mean that we cut off our relationships of our families. So then what does it mean? Leaving our father and mother means that we are creating new relationships and at the same time transforming existing relationships. There's a new relationship established and previous relationships are now being transformed. When a child leaves the home, a child, a child in the sense of son or daughter, he begins his own family. The relationship then with his previous family transformed. The child is is now an adult. They are in an an adult relationship. Not that they are an adult in the sense of age or an adult in the sense of experience. But you now have your own family. You're no longer under the authority of your parents in their homes. They are, are not the authority in your homes. I can remember the first time my wife and I were were married. And it was about midnight at some point, and we decided we were going to go get a hamburger and french fries. 
And I thought, this is really cool. I don't have to ask my mom or tell my mom that I'm leaving to go get a hamburger and french fries. You must still respect your father and mother. But you are now the authority in your own home. I've always been close to my mother. But our relationship has changed. My heart for my my mother is still that of a child. I still love her in the same way that I did when I was a child. But I'm a grown man now. I'm the man that my father and mother have raised me to be. Our relationship has changed in many ways. But in many ways it's still the same. The new relationship though. That is created is to your wife or to your husband. They now become your priority. Their ideas, their practices, their desires, their pursuits become priority for you now. They are now your main family. This is not a cutting off, though. It's a rearranging. It's a rearranging of priority. This also means that neither husband or wife should overly or excessively, listen now, be dependent upon parents for assistance. You have your own family. This also means that the new family, new husband and new wife, should not be overly or excessively dependent upon their parents for approval, for counsel. There's a balance there. Is it appropriate to receive these things from your parents? Yes, but it can become unhealthy. If it is not balanced and if we are not careful, there should be a prioritizing in this relationship and it can be unbalanced when the husband or wife are not wise with money. When the husband or wife run to mommy and daddy every time there's a disagreement or a struggle, it can be unbalanced when the wife or the husband take the the advice of their parents over their spouse. Spouse has given you advice. Well, let me go ask my mom and see what she thinks. No, this is your priority. This is your main relationship. Listen here first. Dear parents, you can also be a hindrance. You can also be a hindrance by always wanting to get your fingers on every little issue that's going on in your kids' lives. Placing your, inserting yourself in issues. No one asked you. Overreaching your boundaries into your child's lives when it should be left to your children to figure out for themselves. Amen. Children are to leave the home, establish their own home, create new relationships with their spouse. And when this is done biblically and in a balanced way, it is wonderful. When the children leave, they must leave their father and mother and do so in peace. Let there be peace, because if there is no peace, struggle will be carried over into the relationship, into the marriage, and it will be difficult. It's important for our children to understand these things, these simple truths, even for those of you who may be teenagers or approaching teenage years. You are in your parents' home. You will remain in your parents' home until you begin your own home. Amen. This idea is rejected in today's society. Children are encouraged to be independent. Be on your own. No. You are dependent. You live in your parents' home. You are as independent as your parents allow you to be. That is the true model of submitting 
And that is the true preparation of preparing for your own family. Your parents are not to be prepared. Your parents are to be preparing you to start your own household, to start your own family. They are to prepare you to be adults so that you may stand on your own. We are not to we are not to parent our kids or teach our kids that they must be dependent on us forever and for every little thing. Teenager and you still can't cut your own food. Teenager or even younger and you still can't clean your own room. Parents teach your children to be independent and also submissive while they are in your home. And they are only as independent as you allow them to be. They must model or you must model for them what it means to be mature men and women of God. And young people, follow that pattern. Look to your parents. Look to your godly parents and follow that example. And if you are here and you don't have that example, look to those who are in your church. They are given to you as gifts and follow that example. This is leaving your father and mother, the leaving principle of marriage. Number two, the cleaving principle of marriage. The cleaving principle of marriage. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave. Your Bible may say, hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. What is cleaving or holding fast? Cleaving is a permanent and active commitment. Hear that? Cleaving is a permanent and it is also active commitment. Hold fast is a very good translation. Hold strong. You are steadfast. You are holding in one place. To hold fast is to stick to someone strongly, to to be wielded together strongly. This is not That you are being held passively to one another, but you are being held actively to one another. You are actively holding fast, actively cleaving to one another. And listen, brothers and sisters, it does not begin and end at your wedding. It begins at your wedding and it continues to grow from that point on. I sent Isaiah and Leela a text message last night. It is not over. It's just begun. It has just begun. You have been united. And that union is to be developed every single day. Husband and wife are to actively and continually bind themselves one to another. Which means marriage again is intended to be permanent and not temporary. Continually binding to one another. If you're finding yourself spreading apart and loosening then what has happened what has happened to your cleaving and to your holding fast? It is to be permanent. It is to be continuous. If you find yourself stretching and breaking apart, someone has ceased from cleaving. One or the other or both. And you have made a commitment to hold fast to one another. The Lord Jesus quoted from the book of Genesis in Mark, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
the Lord Jesus quotes this verse to show this is how God intended marriage to be at creation. It is not to be torn asunder. It is to be joined together. We are to hold fast to our spouses. We are to continue to cleave to them. And listen, this cleaving, this holding fast is not dependent upon how you feel at the moment. Holding fast is not dependent upon how you feel. Your marriage is not something that happens to you, but it is something that you commit to every single day. Don't sit around and wait for Cupid to shoot you in the heart again. Not so. You are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You have made commitments. You have made vows to love and to cherish. Hold fast to one another. Your feelings are not base. The basis for your cleaving. You're holding fast to one another is based on the commitment that you've made before God. And, and the obedience of his command to hold fast, hold fast to this commitment. Seek to strengthen the bond in your marriage every single day. When we say, I love you, it's not a feeling statement. It's a commitment statement. I told my wife before we were married, when I tell you I love you, it's because I'm going to marry you. Not because I just feel warm and fuzzy about you. I'm going to marry you. You are the object of my investment. I give myself to you. I will hold fast to you. It's a matter of obedience. Because God said in the book of Genesis, therefore, because God has made humans in this way and established marriage in this way, therefore cleave to one another. It's a matter of obedience, not dependent upon how you feel. This command. This command to hold fast and to cleave, what does it do? It keeps your feelings in check. It keeps your feelings in check with what? With the reality of God's commands. God's word directs our feelings because his word is truth. And our feelings are so up and down and unreliable. Are they not? Are they not? We use truth to correct our feelings. When we are acting a certain way, when we respond in a certain way, it is truth that will correct our feelings and bring us back to this is actually reality and this is not. Truth. Yes, they are acting this way. Or maybe I am acting this way. But the truth is this. I must obey what God has commanded in spite of how they or I am acting. I've been commanded to cleave, to hold fast. Our wedding vows make it clear that our commitments are not based upon conditions. And yet, so many of our struggles in marriage, marriages are because of conditions. We've made vows in our marriages for better or for worse. And when it gets worse, we say, I'm not sure if I want to stay here. We made vows for richer or for poorer. And when the bills begin to stack up, we say, I'm not sure if we're in this together anymore. We made vows in sickness and in health. And yet when one is sick, we begin to question and even maybe think, what am I doing here? We are saying those things will change when we make these vows. When we make these vows, we're saying those things knowingly will change. 
And in spite of their ups and downs, in spite of their changing, I commit myself to you knowing that they will change. We will go through hard times and great times. We will go through times of excess and times when, when, when things are lean. There will be days when we will rupture our Achilles tendon. And there will be days when we will not be able to get up out of bed because we've just delivered. And in all of those times, I hold fast to you. I cling even closer to you. This is my commitment. Based upon God's command and the love that I have for you that I vow before God will never change. But will only, if it does change, it grows stronger, not weaker. Stronger, not weaker. We look to some of the people who have been married for, it seems like, since after Adam and Eve. And you begin to ask, how are they still here? How have they made it through all of those years? There is a leaving. There is a holding fast. And they're still standing. They're still standing. Where when you were first married, saying one word the wrong way would cause World War Three to break out. Now you don't care what they say. It just goes one in one ear and out the other. Nothing bothers you anymore. Says the one who has been married after Adam. (laughs) Our commitments are based upon God's command to leave. And to pledge our commitment to one another. Are there cases due to sin? That there are separations? Yes, there are. But we must keep those things far from our minds. And far from our hearts. As we cleave to please God and stay committed to one another in our vows and become one flesh. Number three, the one flesh principle of marriage. The one flesh principle of marriage. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh or the two shall become one flesh. I'd like you to notice something. Very important here. There is a sequence, is there not? Do you see the sequence? All people in here, under the sound of my voice, paid close attention to the sequence. Where is becoming one flesh in the order or sequence of verse 24? Is it first or is it last? Huh? It is last. The union of one man. And one woman becoming one flesh in physical unity is last. The sequence ordained and ordered by God is not and not by man. It is is a man leaves his father and mother. A man holds fast to his wife. And the two finally then in consummation become one flesh. You see that? What has the world done? The world has taken that which is last and made it first. Do not buy the lie that these biblical principles of marriage are relics from a bygone age. Not so. 
when we look around at the disintegration of the world and the family, it is because these biblical principles have been tossed to the wayside. God teaches us that one flesh union took place in the context of public commitment, signified in leaving and holding fast to the wife, and consummated as the two become one flesh. Why is premarital union, there are young ones here, why is premarital union such a big deal? Everyone's doing it. And doing it younger and younger. Why is it forbidden by God? Where is the basis for our, our uh, stating that it is forbidden by God? The basis is here. Here is the order. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and then the two become one flesh. Amen. Why? Why is this a big deal? Because God is our creator. God has ordered it in such a way. God knows what is good and well for his people. And he wants to protect our minds, protect our hearts, protect our lives. And also to reflect the union, the unbroken faithfulness, the union of the unbroken faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. God commands that man and woman unite to be one. God commanded man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply. This would be the this would only be accomplished as man and woman become one flesh. And in the context, this is to be accomplished through marriage and through marriage alone. The husband and wife are to come together as one. And that union is good. It is to be desired. And it must not be neglected unless for spiritual purposes only, says Paul in the New Testament. Parents, prepare your kids Instruct your children in this area as well. Instruct them in the sanctity and the beauty of the one flesh union. You, you must prepare them for the joy and sanctity of becoming one flesh. Because if you don't, health class will. Because if you don't, ungodly teachers who believe in same-sex marriage will. If you don't, the government will. Someone other than their godly parents will teach them. If you are not, who would you rather have teaching them about this sanctity and the joy and the holiness of this union? You or them? You. They will get answers from ungodly people if you do not take the initiative to teach them. It's awkward. Grow up. No one ever taught me. And look how you came out. Look at the things you had to endure. Maybe if someone godly sat you down and taught you what must be done, how God has commanded it, maybe you would have done different things. To God be the glory you know now. To God be the glory you have little ones now and you can teach them to be better than you were. Amen. Our culture likes to paint the picture that becoming one flesh, it's exciting. It's exciting spur of the moment. It's, it's exciting with many different people. It has no sanctity. It has no value in their eyes. Recover marriage, brothers and sisters. Recover, recover the marriage bed. Amen. By displaying in our own marriages and teaching our old, own children the joy and the sanctity of marriage and becoming one flesh. It is a fundamental gift in marriage. And if we don't prepare our children, who will? 
If we don't, who will? Do not neglect the marriage bed. Amen. Love each other with purity. So many difficult things in life, brothers and sisters. Let us enjoy the things that are wonderfully given to us as a gift from God. Becoming one flesh. It's not just physical. It's also very personal. Becoming one flesh does not mean that you are just one person. You are two people. You are two people. On a personal level, level you must you then unite as two different people. Two different individuals uniting in trust, uniting in love, uniting in, in compassion, in communication, in honesty. And this will make becoming one flesh all the more better. Some of the questions that I ask our premarital uh, marriage classes that I ask our uh, students is, what is the other person's favorite song? No, I don't know. What, what's their favorite color? Blue? What, where are the places they like to go? If they could go anywhere, where would they like to go? If they could eat anything, my favorite subject, what would they like to eat? What, what am I getting at? Do you know them? Are you intimate with them on a personal level? What makes them laugh? What makes them smile? What makes them cry? The man and the woman are sharing souls with one another. This level of companionship for husband and wife is meant for husband and wife to know one another. Listen, there should not be a best friend that you have on the side who really knows you. There should not be man or woman. There should not be a best friend on the side who knows you better than your spouse, who you are more intimate with on a personal level than your spouse, who you tell all of your secrets to other than your spouse. Your wife should know you. Your husband should know you inside and out. No other relationship should ever replace, hinder, or threaten, or even detract from your marriage and that bond. How do we do this? By leaving, by cleaving, and by holding fast to one another, becoming one flesh. There should be personal intimacy in the home. Chiefly in the home and nowhere else. When you have this personal intimacy, it helps the one flesh union. And brothers and sisters, the investment is worth it. It's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. It is good to obey this command. Don't expect physical union if there is no personal union. Amen. Amen. This will take giving and forgiving one another. Often, often being gracious to one another, recognizing that, that you have not married a sinless man or woman, but you have married a sinner who is in need of the grace of God. We've married someone who is just in need of mercy as we are in need of mercy. We must therefore not withhold mercy and grace from one another. We must seek to give grace often and abundantly. To forgive one another, meaning being merciful to one another, often and abundantly. And what do we do when we do this? We display the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in our marriage. We display husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. We display wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And in this way, 
as we display this first to our, our spouse, our spouses, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ then becomes to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends and to our families, an evangelistic means that God uses to make the gospel known. A means that God uses, an evangelistic means. Your child has a friend who is an unbeliever. Tell me about Christ dying for the church. What does that mean? And Moses and Noah and Nazareth and all of these other children should be able to bring their friends over and say, see the way daddy loves mommy. See the way daddy cares for mommy. See the way daddy serves mommy and does anything for mommy. That is the way that Christ has given and loved his church. A friend comes and says, what does it mean that the church submits to Christ and our little ones, Gianna, and so on and so forth, should be able to bring their, their friends over and say, see the way mommy serves daddy. See the way mommy loves and adores daddy. See the way mommy follows daddy's lead. That is the way that we follow Christ as his church. You become a tool of evangelism in your marriage. Amen. Paul tells the Ephesian church that marriage is to reflect all the more the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Our marriage is to reflect even more so the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Christ laid down his life for his church. The church willingly and submissively follows her, her king. Is your marriage that?